卵の殻を破らねばひな鳥は生まれずに死んでいく自由の部屋と自由の籠空の広さを教えずに彼らはひなを可愛がる世界の籠を破壊せよ世界を革命するために Welcome back to the Shadow Play Gaze.、Uh, we are a podcast that discusses the 1997 anime, Revolutionary Girl Usna. As always, I'm your host, Derek Reining, and I'm joined by someone who is probably the second most likely person besides Suwabuki to write a secret diary about Nanami.、Uh, it's Kasita. Yes, that is true. I like, what if I did have just like, that's basically what my notes are for the podcast.、Yeah. Like, my Google、what、Doc、if? of like 100 pages is just me <laughs> talking about Nanami.、Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, we are here to talk about Nanami. This is an episode where we are talking about Nanami and we will be talking about the way we talk about Nanami、uh, because it's very much from、uh, Swabaki's perspective of her. We are talking about episode 23, The Secret Nanami Diary. So, this is either like some people throw this under as the end of like the Black Rose arc or like the start of the next arc, whatever you want to call it. We're in a transitional period. <clears throat> this is a clip show essentially, but as we mentioned, clip shows are never just clip shows on you. So, now we see we're getting a lot of new footage in this episode. So, we'll talk about it and then we will do our second mailbag,、um, reading your comments and answering some questions. And seeing the thoughts you have to share with us. So, this will be a fun one. I don't think we have anything we need to warn folks about for this episode. It's all stuff we've seen before, it's just、mm-hmm. general Nanami wackiness. Yes.、Um, and yeah, I guess let's just get right into it. And that's,、uh, are there special credits for this one? Yeah. It's,、uh, so, this is, they're all folks we've seen before.、Uh, storyboards by Jun Matsumoto,、uh, who have worked on quite a few episodes of the, the show and also worked on Penguin Drum. Previously, did Take Care of Miss Nanami, Nanami's Precious One, Thorns of Death, and Nemuro Memorial Hall.、Um, it was directed by Toro Takahashi. He directed 10 episodes of the show, including the premiere and the finale. He's an Evangelion alum. And this is, of course, written by Ryota Yamaguchi,、um, who wrote like every single Nanami episode. So,、uh, a dream team. <laughs> yes.、Um, so, yeah, we. We're getting a lot of reused footage here. So, like, we'll be t a l k I think what's interesting about this episode is the way it's framed. And, like,、mm-hmm. of course, from Swabaki's perspective. So, of course, open on Swabaki,、uh, telling Nanami her schedule,、um, doing his little、uh, boy servant duties, essentially. <laughs>、yes. Um, her, yes, her resident twink who is here to take care of all of her needs. Yeah, and、um, in this opening scene, the, the one thing that just jumped out at me like, visually was like, he like, hands her like, a vocabulary cheat sheet. And there's like,、yes. emphasis on him like, handing her the thing and their hands.、Um, mm. I, didn't, I, I just thought that was an interesting shot.、Um, you could see、yep. that. It's like, I mean, he is very much doing this out of like, everything he does is like, out of affection for her and like, wanting to be closer to her. And like, So, the, the, the t- vocabulary cheat sheet is, is it, the object itself is in a way like a token of his obedience and his servitude towards her. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I can see that. And I also think it's significant that I'm pretty sure we don't see Nanami's face in this little stinger either.、Um, we get a, a, like a pretty long shot of the, her, the behind of her as she's walking away from Suwabuki. So, I think that's just like in general supposed to be、uh, our sign that we are firmly in his perspective here, not Nanami's.、Um, mm-hmm. 
which is worth noting because we usually do get a lot of Nanami's perspective and not his. So, um, yeah, it's a good way to sort of bring us into this world of um, the world, according to Suwabuki, um, as we revisit some episodes. Yeah, so, of course, he he, he answered his vocabulary cheat sheet and what happens? A uh, runaway horse uh, charges at uh, yes. Nanami. Um, it's been a while since Nanami's been, um, <laughs> you know, terrorized by an animal. Um, and it charges at her, but he pushes her out of the way. And we get this voiceover of Swabaki basically introducing himself. He's like, I'm Mr. Swabaki, blah, blah, blah. And it sounds a lot like, you're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> I was going to say, who's going to make the first, like, record scratch uh, sort of comparison? <laughs> Definitely, it's very that, for sure. <laughs> And the diary flies out of his bag, and he says he has a secret nobody else must know. And then cut, hard cut to the title card, the secret Anami diary. Um, so it is very we're very much having it set up here that the object um, of the diary is going to be the center, as the title suggests, the center of this episode. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it's very different from our first, um, shall we call them, uh, clip show episodes. Um, where that one we learn a lot of like new context like in the grand scheme of things Mm -hmm. I think here we don't really learn much beyond like (laughs) some like oh the three guys were switched with the elephants and that's why the elephants were acting weird (laughs) like that kind of stuff Um, not much in the terms of like the cosmic grand scheme of things here but I think still a very worthwhile episode I mean, and it's interesting, we've, like, we took a break last week, so it's, like, I didn't, you know, this wasn't fresh in my mind, but, like, this is right after the end of the Black Rose Varg, the, the qualifications of a duelist, because no one remembers what happened, and so it's, like, very, it's tonally very jarring to go from <laughs> that to this, because no, none, like, we get hints, you know, we can maybe assume that, like, on, like, a molecular level, people do remember stuff, and, like, like you wonder, like, the Swabaki, like, you know, did, did he internalize like what happened with the in the in the elevator and with the duel and everything? But it's it's just such a jarring like yeah, um, you know, Nemro Memorial Hall. Professor Nemro Makaji has truly been forgotten because mm-hmm. the 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 clip show at the end like after his arc has nothing to do with him. It's about <laughs> Nanami. Um, that just really shows like how erased he is from the public memory. Even like the memory of the show is not bothering re- recapping what happened in the Black Rose arc because no one remembers it. There's nothing to recap. It did not happen, but we know it happened. Exactly. And, it. <laughs> I, and I mean, the shadow play sequence at the end directly references uh, one of the shadow play sequences in the Black Rose saga. So mm-hmm. it's like the show remembers, like you said, on maybe like a molecular, on the subconscious. I think that's maybe a good way to think about the shadow play girls. I don't think we've really talked about like, what they really represent and like to me i think there's a reading of it where they are they represent sort of the like subconscious of the school itself or the people there and like clearly on some level the school in like capital t capital s remembers um the things that happened because we still have a monkey catching robot around yes um but Again, that is whether we remember or not is not important because this is all about Nanami, as yeah. the show should be. Um, so while so we cut to Swabaki in the hospital, 
Um, we hear his heart monitor beeping, and this is important because we hear it speed up. Um, and we see Utena, Nanami, and Anthea, shadow girls behind the curtain. I love this, this the way this, like, this is a really good episode. Like, it's I think it's really funny. Um, but then just, like, it's like, you know, again, you can have the impression that a clip show is lazy, but this is nothing but lazy, like, in the way it's, like, reframing these main characters now as shadow girls. They're, like, the the silhouettes, like, reading another character's perspective on the narrative. And it's just, like, yeah, there's so much going on here in terms of narrative and performance, and, and it's just fun. I, I love that, that taking these main characters and turning them into shadow girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like- they, 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 they don't know they have an audience. Like, you know, they're doing this for themselves, but, like, they don't know that Swabaki is awake and listening and watching them. So it's like, you know, can you, the, you know, theater implies an audience, even if you don't know you have one. It's just interesting. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think that uh, sort of plays into uh, the ideas of the diary itself. This um, person uh, is, just, like, Suwabuki is treated almost like a voyeur for doing mm-hmm. these things, for always being there. But then it makes you, like, the things we're seeing like from his perspective in quotes are things that we've seen. So it's like kind of calling us a voyeur too. Like you're the one, like not only is he like keeping tabs on these characters uh, to a level that's like creepy. uh, So are we like, we are really honed in on these people. Um, So I, 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 like you said, there's a lot of good like meta stuff going on in this episode, even if it is just maybe a throwaway clip episode to some. Yeah, and it's also fun to have this, like, because, like, we've talked about how, like, Nanami likes to be in the shadows, and, like, we've seen her watching from the shadows, and I love the reveal that, like, while she was watching from the shadows, Swabaki was watching her from shadows further away. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, so the first clip we get, we won't, but it's when we first meet Matt Nanami, when the, the you know, plays out exactly the same, you know, the three girls slapping on the Nanami playing the hero. Um and the, but we get we see Swabaki watching from behind the pillar and taking notes. And his commentary on this is he see, he sees her help the weak and she despises evil, the personification of school justice. But I also know about Nanami's true face. Um, so we've had a lot of talk about like true and hidden faces um, with Jury. Um, but Swabaki is claiming to know uh, Nanami's true face. Yes, and I love that. Um... Utena and Adi like are like oh yeah okay so he gets you because like we know you're not nice like that like we know you aren't interested in justice or whatever um like you said lots of really funny little jokes like that throughout this episode uh but it is interesting that he like also believes both versions like he Mm -hmm. talks about like yeah she is interested in justice and all these things as if it's like a fact um but she has this other face but it's like it's as if the true face doesn't negate that public face that she has too mm-hmm. at least to suwabuki yeah i got really excited when utina said the, your image and the real you because i love talking about the image and so i was just really excited mm-hmm. when utina like straight up said that there's the real you and the image uh, of you that you project like in in public spaces in these um, performative ways um so i just got excited when it was ex- stated outright <laughs> yeah leonardo dicaprio pointing meme that's yeah. you like every five seconds on this show <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um and then the next clip we get is the the, the scene at the ball um and we, the, we of course get the reveal that Sabaki was watching from under a table um and then talking about nanami how she watches from the sidelines so again these like layers of like recursion of like mm-hmm. voyeurism brian de palma <laughs> uh, get her heart out um and um this is where like I, I i i like every time i get to this episode and like 
this is now like the fourth time I've seen it. I always forget that like Anthe and Uchida, like until this moment did not know that Nanami was behind <laughs> dress dissolving prank. <laughs> like it's like we've known this and like I especially the first time I remember thinking, oh they knew this, but they didn't. They didn't know that. <laughs> Which is so funny because they like already like they've seen others things that made them realize Nanami is like not a very good person, but like that wasn't it. That wasn't the yeah. <laughs> They're just like, oh of course. Like they don't even seem surprised by it, honestly. They're just like, oh it was you. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I find it interesting that Nanami tried to backtrack because it's like that's like I feel like she's feeling exposed here because because it is like someone has watched she like is watching her and writing about her. Like you would think that Nanami would try to own that because it did humiliate Anthe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, maybe she's in the same way she was trying to expose in that moment, trying to expose the real Anthe. She is feeling that the real her might be exposed here. And that's why she is, you know, backtracking it and like being like, no, 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 no. That's not what happened. Right. Like, even if it is like a beat by beat, like recounting of the actual events, like they don't make her look good. So I don't think she likes that. Um, mm-hmm. Even if, like you said, maybe in another context, she would own it. Um, not here though. Um, so no. yeah, we get to, we get the ball, um, and then what's our next episode we revisit re- here? The curry. Curry. Yeah, we see Swabiki watching from a tree with the opera glasses. Mm. Um, as uh, opera is not a sore subject for me anymore. I got undumped. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, yeah, so we see him with the opera glasses watching as Nanami plans the curry like thing. And then we get this new scene we had not seen before um, of the three boys waiting to eat the curry while three elephants look in from the window. <laughs> um, so it is the implication of this episode is that when Anthe and Utina swapped bodies, the boys and the elephants swapped bodies. We still don't know why the elephants were there in the first yeah. place, but it's just like kind of it, this is very silly. I find this, this episode makes me laugh a lot because it's just yeah. like so absurd. Like yeah. adding yeah, this, like, like, layers expl- of absurdity. <laughs> yeah, the explanation in quotes of like the weird elephant behavior is even more insane. Like, <laughs> oh, don't worry, guys, it makes sense. Remember the body switching curry? They were there too. Like... <laughs> yeah, they were... And then they went to India somehow. Right. Um, and then we get Swabaki's narration of the body swap. Um, uh, just basically narrating what happened to Uta and Anthe, and it's what we've heard before. Um, you know, they swap personalities, we see the pictures, um, and then we find out that Swabaki went to India with them and he brought his opera glasses. Of course. And we get the red arrow pointing at Swabaki, kind of <laughs> obviously reminding us of the of the fingers pointing in Nemo Memorial Hall as he's being chased by the elephants. And we realize that the reason the elephants hit the truck was because they were chasing Swabaki. And it's just funny because it's like, you know, we had it's like almost like this episode is kind of like pulling the camera back like a little wider. Like, mm-hmm. just out of frame, this was happening. And <laughs> I, I mean, and it's like, I think um, this came up once with, like, a Shadow Play Girls uh, scene of, like, when it was, like, a UFO on, like, a fishing rod or something. Or something mm-hmm. was on a fishing rod and, and talking about, I think, I think it was I think it was the first um, clip show episode, um, mm-hmm. talking about, like, how, you know, can we, making us think about, like, the show is showing us what it wants us to see at a given time. And at any point we can pull back, it could pull back the curtain and pull back the camera a bit and show us more um, that it was hiding from us. Um, and this of course is a very humorous, humorous way to do that, but that's certainly what's happening here. Exactly. And I mean, well, like we kind of saw that happen last week in a more serious context with uh, the Anthe reveal of her being, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's like, like you said, the show does the reveal 
in the best way a reveal can be done, which is we weren't being uh, deprived of information. Um, it's just like we weren't, the camera needed to move like a, mi a millimeter over and then we would have seen what was actually going on. Um, and it's it's not twist for shock value. It's like a twist in the real true sense of that word. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, like you said, it's used in a funny way here. And then um, we we get you know the the whole everything that happens with the divine justice of this of the mm -hmm. spice breaking, um, and Hooten and Anthea are like, wow, Nanami, you've really been up to no good. Like, <laughs> what other dirt does he have on you? Um, and the the next episode, we kind of like jump back a bit to the pencil case scene because uh, mm -hmm. the curry thing happened after, um, and uh, we see that Swamiki was in the ceiling. <laughs> of Uchina and Anthe's dorm watching. And at one point we see the elephants watching from outside. So the elephants were there even on campus even before <laughs> they the were curry episode. See, again, this whole episode, if you were like CinemaSins dinging the show, uh, like why are the elephants acting this way? They're like, <laughs> here you go. Could you imagine like a CinemaSins thing like about Uchina? <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> Oh, don't manifest it. No, no, um, no. And, uh, but the the commentary I found interesting from Swabaki here was Swabaki saying that no matter how she hurts people, she always ends up getting hurt the worst. And I mean, this is, of course, um, referencing the fact that her schemes just don't work. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting in that, like, you know, Nanami very much goes out of her way to hurt other people, like, in the name of her brother um, and her affection for her brother and protecting him from, you know, intruders into their world um but she's the one you know the schemes backfire on you know not toga um yeah like i mean it's like something it's what you've talked about before that toga usually gets to get away scot-free like mm -hmm. no one's ever pointing their finger at toga ever um and that even comes like true for nanami and her schemes like you said it never backfires and hurts toga even though he kind of is the reason for it even happening in the first place it all comes back to uh, Nanami or whoever. Yeah, it's, it's oh. she. It's, she is the girl, you know, acting out against other girls in the name mm. of her brother, and he's not necessarily like directly directing her to do it. Um, but it just his existence in her world leads her to do these things, and yeah, she's the one who has to do the legwork for it, stay up all night trying to catch a snake, and mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, the you know Uchin and Anthe are the ones at, on the other end of it. Right. And I, mean, mm -hmm. and I mean, the fact that he made Nanami a duelist in the first place also shows that he is perfectly fine with her behaving that way and it mm -hmm. encourages it a lot of the time, too. And potentially getting hurt herself because, you mm -hmm. know, you know, we see her hair gets cut, you know, in that duel. Um, you know, she could have gotten hurt. Um, Nanami. <laughs> oh, queen. Um, queen. Um, Hutuna's like, girl, you're really up to no good. <laughs> <laughs> and and we we really seeing Nanami getting flustered here. Um, she's really getting like red. It's like someone like <laughs> it's like someone found her Twitter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the best way to put it. Nanami gets doxxed in this episode. I can relate to that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then Anthe reads, and so Nanami has made Hememia her sworn enemy. <laughs> and this Nanami says, hold it, like, over and over, and then someone taps on, like, the vision test, mm -hmm. um, um, which is really fun. Um, and this comes back later. Um, but then Anthe goes on to say, but there's a, a very profound reason for this. 
which no one may never know. Um, and I feel like the profound reason for this is never stated. I think it's just Toga. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the implication that it, it, that she's doing it for Toga. Um, but I think maybe I maybe he thinks that's like a secret mm-hmm. that it's like Nanami idealizes Toga to the point that no other man can um, stack up to him. Like I think people know that about Nanami, or at least they know that she likes Toga. Like she adores her brother. I think maybe it's just like a revelation to him. Mm-hmm. Or I guess to like maybe some other. Like, the person who could be reading this. Because he kind of is, like, explaining this as if it's going to be read by someone. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's, like, to an outsider who doesn't know they need this information uh, about Toga in mm-hmm. order to understand Nanami's uh, decision-making. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's, like, the sentiment we end on uh, before mm-hmm. the, the the act break. And then we cut back from the act break. And then Uchina and Nanami are in the middle of fighting over the diary. And then Anthe shushes them because Choo Choo's sleeping. And they listen closely. And Anthe says, soft teeth grinding, like the swaying of a rope bridge in the wind. And then Nanami listens and says, it's like the creak of a swing at a beach. <laughs> I don't know if we have thoughts on this. I think it's just, like, it's a really hilarious way of Anthe <laughs> showing that she is, she's very sneaky. She, like, at first you're like, what is happening? And then you realize it's, Anthe is purely doing this so Utena can keep reading the diary. Yeah, it's a great diversion. It worked. I'm just, like, surprised it worked uh, on Nanami. I'm <laughs> um, and then we cut to a student council meeting with Jury, Toga, and Mickey, and Sabaki's under the table, and it's like, this is, like, one of my, like, I think my favorite gag of the episode, because it's, like, there's, it's so, he's not hidden at all. <laughs> um, uh, it's just very funny. Like, how did he get in there? Well, we know, we know that we saw him get in there at one point, um, with with Nanami but it's just so funny and um and he just talks about you know Nanami's world revolves around Toga I'm just a kid but I want to be a big brother like Toga someday and then this is the part where Utena suggests they stop reading because these are Swabaki's feelings in there um and this kind of gets back at the 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 Sionji, uh exchange diary um mm. being like you know like a, a totem of his, of his feelings yeah, I think they found it, like, okay to keep reading as long as it was, like, about Nanami. Mm-hmm. But I think as soon as it starts to, like, get more about Suwabuki is when Utsuna starts to get uncomfortable. Because it's almost as if, um, before that, it was as if it were just, like, a story being told. Um, and they these, like we said, these were events that they knew about. Maybe they didn't know every detail, but these are things that happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now it's, like, as the curtain kind of pulls back, like, we've used that phrase before like they makes Uta uncomfortable when the curtain gets pulled back a little and we start looking at like well what does the person writing this think about this yeah uh, they're realizing this is, is saying more about Swabuki really mm-hmm. than it's even saying about Nanami because it's right. about how he views Nanami and that says a lot about him absolutely and then that uh comes even more to focus when we start getting into his uh strategies yes but first we get this little gag of nanami saying you've already read a ton it's not like his feelings carry such weight and she's sitting on a scale don't my feelings <laughs> carry weight and then uchina says 49 kilos at least and nami <laughs> says she's gained but we see choo sitting on the scale with her <laughs> um it's just a like a funny little gag again all is all playing out a shadow shadow play style um absolutely. 
And then, yeah, we get Tomiki's strategies. And so the next flash, the next like, clip is of when Nanami was being stalked in the episode mm-hmm. where we first met him. Um, and except this time she ends, she like ends up in the hospital after presumably being hit by a car and she can't remember mm-hmm. anything. And she sees Toga's silhouette, Toga's shadow uh, through the you know hospital curtain calling her name. Um, and then we see that it's Swabuki and he tells her he's her big brother and she's excited and he says, come to me, Nanami, like, like exactly like Toga did in the Curry episode. And she jumps toward him. Um, again, this is played for like laughs, but it's also like pretty fucked up. Like, like, like it's like obviously like Swabuki's like goal was that she would like forget who she is and like forget who her brother is so he could pretend to be her brother uh, <laughs> which is like woo. um yeah, of course right. it didn't happen but it's yeah it's like you know dark stuff for this kid to like uh the lengths he was willing to go to yeah and i mean that also yeah this part i think the two strategies show two different things the first one i think shows like the lengths to which he's willing to like hurt someone else in order to be Nanami's, like, whatever, like, be close to her. And then the second one, which is about the cow episode, shows maybe the links he's willing to hurt himself in mm. order to get close to Nanami. So, uh, yeah, we can start talking about the cow one, I guess, then. <laughs> well, yeah, because then it's after the first strategy. That's when Sabuki, like, um, finally jumps out of bed. Um, oh, yes. As Anthe's about to read the next strategy. And he jumps out of bed in only a sheet. And Nanami calls them evil conspiracies. And he says, no, I was only trying to be a man worthy of you. And I love the shot of Nanami between the curtains. Like, there, are, there everyone else is a yes. shadow person, but Nanami um, is, like, in between the curtains. And we see her, and they're, like, pulling her in back and forth. It's just a fun little sight, uh, like, fun little visual uh, thing there. Um, and then Utina says, don't get too excited. You'll, you'll turn into a cow again. And Auntie's mm. like, Strategy number two, what will happen if Nami turns into a cow again? That always cracks me out. Like, the beat on that is so perfect. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it plays out the exact same way it did the first time she turned into a cow. Um, except we, have, we see that the cows have the three boys' faces <laughs> on them, which is very disturbing. Very. Um, and, yeah, as you said, Swabuki, in this, in this strategy, he will stand between uh, Nanami and Utena, and he will tell her it's all right. Even if you're a cow, I'll always take care of you. And he puts on the cow bell and turns into a cow too, and they both moo. So yeah, what well, you you're getting at this that he's willing to turn into a cow himself, you know, turn like hurt himself in a way, like become less of a person, um, or mm-hmm. like literally deprive himself of his personhood um, to be be with Nanami, because then at least they'd both be cows. Right. Exactly. I mean, it feels kind of like. Um the two Suabuki episodes you've had before kind of like writ small here. Like we had the first one, which is all about how much he wants to be like Toga and be that big brother in Nami's life. And then the second one is more about how, I mean, like we said before, the duels are life threatening. They are like, you're putting yourself in danger when you go into the dueling arena. And he was willing to do that for uh, Nanami on some level. And so I think I mm-hmm. like this episode as um, sort of like reencapsulating um, what, this character in particular has gone through. And um, even if it's like not about the events of the Black Rose saga, it still like kind of feels that way, um, at least in terms of like this little flashback speaking to his feelings there. Yeah, and, and it's worth remembering, we talked about like in the language of the cow episode in general, like, the you know, like cows are like animals that are 
led to slaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if we don't, you know, see the outcome of that, you know, it is, you know, the fact that Tom Key is willing to become a cow specifically knowing what often happens to cows um, is a real bummer. <laughs> yeah, major bummer. Um, um, but yeah, so um, we get, to, that is essentially the end of the diary. Um, and then, uh, but it does not end there. No. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, the, the chain of events that lead to Nanami <laughs> flying out the window, I don't, I'm very confused how she flies out the window because he tells him to stop, his blanket falls, an elephant rears up, Choo Choo <laughs> rings a bell, and Nanami goes like, Fuck it, she's like gets major air. Like she like I don't understand. Like a, presumably an elephant like pushes her out the window. I don't know. But somehow no, an anomaly falls. I think off. she's just reeling at um the sight of um, Suabuki apparently, um to the point that she literally falls out of a window, um and ends up in the hospital again this is our third sort of wake up scene in this episode yes lots of people waking up from being knocked unconscious yeah uh, which is also interesting i think when you think about this episode as a sort of transition from what was like a very like psychologically heavy um string of episodes which was the black rose saga it's almost as as if we've been through some sort of trauma and we're waking up um, but we maybe don't remember everything that happened, or at least the characters don't remember everything happened, but they've still gone through something, uh, mm-hmm. and it's time for them to wake up, I guess, according to the show. Yeah, for sure. I didn't think about that, but there is a lot of unconsciousness and waking, waking up in this episode, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, Nanami's in the hospital bed, and then she, like, grabs the book out of his hands, and her her lackey char- lackeys come in and hold him down as the vision chart says no 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 um <laughs> and she starts to read strategy number 24 and he says he's finished if she reads that page i really want to know what that strategy yes, was please um but we don't get it because we get a shadow girls scene we think we're not going to get one this episode but it, right at the end of the episode uh we get it so um we have uh the first shadow girl saying i'm finished and then a donkey saying what is it um and then she says i have a secret i can't keep the king has ears like a donkey and then a cat says a donkey you say and the girl says i'm a monkey hiding behind a girl's face um and then a rooster says no one can ever marry her now how shameless and then the monkey catching robot catches the monkey gets in the ufo and takes off and then the three boys watch it take off as they all say curry yes um we have a I meeting cannot... of the Greek. We have a meeting of the Greek choruses. Oh, it's um, true. We do. Yeah, like, the observers <laughs> observing the other observer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't wait to fully discuss what I think this means later. Oh, okay, okay. I'm excited because <laughs> I I don't really. I have a pretty firm I... grasp on how I interpret it, but it is not something I can talk about right now. I... <laughs> I think I think I have let's when we finish recording I do I now that you said that I think I know what your angle is but when we, when we stop recording I want to just confirm that we're sure thinking the same but thing. I guess just to like leave people with um some thoughts on because like how could the shadow play gays not talk about the shadow play girls <laughs> uh, my thoughts are that I think just like last time we got a clip show we got some like visuals related to the next arc I think maybe this shadow play sequence even though it seems like really surreal and weird and it is um i think it's something to think keep in mind as we do enter into the back half of the show 
because I think this may be something people will want to revisit after they've um, gotten a little further into the series. At least that's okay. my thought. Okay, yeah, because I, I did not think about it. Well, I really didn't know what to make of this um, until just now, until you hinted at something, and now I'm thinking. I'm thinking, so um, mm. big thoughts. Um, but yeah, let's. I'm excited to return to this one because I do have thoughts now. Um, but yeah, we do have to return to the monkey catching robot, and we talked about, I mean, about you know capitalism of, mm. um, and you know, I think there's something to be said about the way we've seen like shadow girls like pitted against each other in like the systems of like you know the the bug spray and the bugs, the monkey catching robot catching the monkey could also be, um, you know, because these are all. They're, they're all shadow girls just playing these roles for this specific play. There could be mm-hmm. something to be said there about systems more broadly. Absolutely. And I mean, it also is important to note here that the monkey here is like very much gendered here. About They mm-hmm. say, oh, you're a monkey? No one will ever want to marry her now. That's mm-hmm. also something worth noting there for sure. Um, but also, like we said, the UFO reappears. Um, last time a UFO showed up, they relocated. So um, I guess we get to look forward to where they land next time. Yes. Do we want to jump into our mailbag? I am so ready. Yes. Yeah, um, we should jump into it because we have a lot to read. Um, we have a couple lo- lo- longer ones um, yes. from I our think... fr- friend Ray that we yes. will read you, parts Ray. of. We will read parts of. I think we will post. We'll give the general gist and we'll post the screenshots of it because they're really insightful things, but just really long. <laughs> yeah, we will um, post their comments. And I mean, maybe we could start posting i don't know more of them in full the ones at least the ones we don't read in full we can post just so um i like we obviously it's not surprising that our listeners are all big brain just like us so i think they deserve their thoughts deserve to be uh given out to everyone if people are comfortable with that um yeah um so i can start with our and there were a couple where I, if you hear your question, a couple things were cut out. That's because you re- reference things later in the show. Um, but I kept the rest of the question because it was still relevant to talk about in this arc. Um, and if your question, comment didn't get read at all, it's because you talked about stuff we haven't talked about yet. And it, we haven't deleted them. They're just going to sit and wait and we will get them in the future mailbags. Yes, um, every single one will be read. I think that we should make that clear. Like we're not yes. going to ignore any of them. Yes, except my my dear friend Simone, who, who keeps sending us the same question about when we're getting to a certain episode. So we will not we will not read that. Um, she doesn't even listen to the podcast. She just loves harassing me. Um, <laughs> no, she's listened to it a bit. Okay, so I'll read the first one. Um, this is from Alex. She her. This is some from my friend Alex from I know from Discord Survivor Games. Um, this is my incredibly surface level analysis because my pre- pea brain is incapable of more. Um, I know she self-identifies as a bimbo. Uh, <laughs> um, how did it only just now occur to me when watching the clip episode and seeing the different colored stained glass windows depicting the duels in order that the duels took place in rainbow order, rose color wise, gay rights, obsessed with the show, <laughs> keep it up with the amazing content analysis. I love it when others think for me. Th- thank you, Alex. Um, yeah, I, I've been meaning to, like, think more about the colors of it all. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. <laughs> like, I, we obviously talk about how the colors relate to the characters. We have not talked about, I guess, like, color symbolism on a grand scale. Like, what does green mean uh, in a more, in a wider sort of, like, meaning? I don't know. Like, I don't think that's really <laughs> what... Uh, the question is about, but I don't know, is that what you're getting from it here? Is that what you want to sort of 
uh, address here, or are we just here to talk about uh, um, the prince said gay rights with the? I, I think I think Alex just wanted to say gay rights. Oh, uh, absolutely. And that's, think, as you said, that's very valid. I think gay rights. Um, yeah. yeah, that that one was definitely more of a comment um, than uh, a question, but we can always uh, say more. Um, but yeah, thank you, Alex. Agreed. Yes, thank you so much for listening, Alex. And I, I'm sure this is that's not the last time you'll say gay rights as you watch the show. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you want to read the next one? Uh, yes, I shall. Um, the next one comes from Viri. Uh, she, her, hi there, love the show. Something I've been fixated on in my most recent watch through of Utsuna is how imagery surrounding death and grief there is, uh, parentheses, e.g. literally the first moment of the first episode is a curtain raising to show two graves and a narration that tells us our protagonist was orphaned at a young age, um, but especially throughout the Black Rose saga with, uh, Soji's whole arc. I'd love to hear any thoughts you have about how grief plays into the Zetai Unmei Mokushi Roku of it all. Uh, cheers. Um, yeah, I think this came up a bit because this was sent before we finished the arc, but this we definitely ended up talking about this with um, the qualifications of a duelist episode, talking about uh, with Alani talking about um, you know Ushna's like the trauma of having lost her parents. Um, I think it in the way it kind of permeates the Black Rose arc is interesting because it's like we see a lot of grief and despair in the Black Rose arc, but it's always um like about like with the black rose duelist it's about like a loss or like not being able to have a specific version like vision of a person or a memory or like like mikaji would say the past um so it's like it's interesting the way that like i think grief comes up not just of like death of course because mikaji having you know like it's it's just as much about Mamiya having died and like feeling guilt for that but also about the fact that he can't like possess tokiko in the way Mm. he wants um, I mean, and then Absolutely. of course, like de- the language of death and like apocalypse, you know, and like is like permeates like every dual song almost. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. I think um, death and grief, like you said, play a big part, um, not just for our characters like Utsuna, who has literally experienced death and grief in her life, and it motivates a lot of her um, actions, like we've talked about. Um, but I think. There's a lot to be said about the idea, like you said, of like death, little deaths. Um, th- like um, sometimes a death can refer to maybe the death of a certain kind, like a certain person's personality. You're like this version of this person has died, but a new one can grow from that. Um, and we saw a lot of like little deaths uh, with the reverse impalements during the Black Rose saga. Like they're framed as if these characters are dying. Um, and I think... It is interesting, like you said, when you think about it in terms of the apocalypse, which is like the idea of the like the death, like death of everything. Um, but the thing about the apocalypse is, is that it's at least in terms of like Christian theology, it's like not the end. It's supposed to be a sort of like now this part is over and now here comes, you know, eternity phase. Yes. Um, so I think this show definitely talks about death a lot. And not just like the death of a human body, but the death of a lot of different things, death of innocence, the death of memory, the death of uh, a lot of things. Um, So, yeah, I think it's definitely very intentional that the show opens on a physical reminder of the fact that we cannot live forever. We are all going Mm. to die at some point. Um, Yeah, fun. What a fun, happy little show. Period. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
yeah, that's you said a lot of things that I wanted to say. So yeah, good, <laughs> good, good job, good job, team. Um, we, did. we did it. Death, grief, we're all gonna die. Um, so our next question comes from Sophia. She they. Um, it's not a question. This isn't a question. I just wanted to comment. Oh, I'm glad I'm reading this one. <laughs> I just wanted to comment that I really enjoyed Christine's commentary on Kanai in episode 14. I hadn't really thought too much about that episode aside uh, from thinking how it introduces new characters and the horror elements of this arc overall. But yeah, Kanai is only 18 and engaged to an adult man. She doesn't have a lot of control over her situation and it makes her frustrations with Anthe make a lot more sense. So thanks for that analysis. I really enjoy listening to how other people talk about RGU because I I always learn so much and thank you both for doing this podcast thank you Sophia that was very nice um not just because you're complimenting me but like I know like that was because I, I we talked about when we did that episode like that was like a, a big like revelation for me in terms of like oh I totally did not have any sort of con- concise thoughts about this character and I had kind of like written her off um but that's like what's so great about the show you can return to it after time and like with a different perspective on things and find something you didn't find so I'm glad that resonated with you um, and that you found that that my reading to be meaningful to you as well. Yeah, awesome. I agree. Uh, Christine's analysis of Kanai like really did change my perspective on that character. Um, the Kanai understander. Yes, we are here. Um, I think also that just does speak to the fact that um, not like not just the show, but like all media is like so not resolute, at least in terms of how we interpret them because of the fact that we are always changing and learning and growing. Um, like my experience of this as a, an almost 30 year old is very different than it was when I was a lot closer to being 20 years old. Um, and a lot of that is because of, uh, is like thinking about the ages of the characters. I think when you're growing up, your idea of like how old people are is like very not set in, like, I don't know. I, I don't know about you, but I always, had a tough time telling how old characters were supposed to be growing up. Like everyone was just like an adult after a certain age and everyone was like a kid otherwise. Um, And so we're dealing here with characters who are either like on the lower end, like we're just like in this little area where these characters themselves are trying to figure out whether they're adults or children. Um, And so I think that can, your perspective on like, oh, like you don't think about much about the fact that this 18 year old, like we said, is, um, engaged to like someone who's presumably late twenties, um, like you just don't think about that. Maybe especially if you're like a younger person watching it. But now, and I think just like on a cultural level, we also think about that a lot more. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think Sophia made a good point that that's just something we always are thinking about is how our interpretations can change. Yeah, to quote um, Kristen Stewart in Olivier Asayas' Clouds of Sosa Maria, the text is like an object. It's going to change perspective based on where you're standing. Um, mm. Lesbian. Lesbian, <laughs> very good movie. Um, yeah, thank you, Sophia. Yes. Um, okay. Now, as always, uh, Audrey is here. <laughs> Audrey is here. <laughs> yes, Audrey. Yes, this one's from Audrey. Obviously, she, her. Hi, gays. I'm curious as to your thoughts about socioeconomic dynamics in Utena. Uh, IDK fits explicitly stated, but Otori Academy seems by all indications to be a private school for pretty well-off students. Obviously, we see the Kuryus have some measure of affluence, and in this arc, jury is revealed to be a high-end model. I have two questions. One, do you think Utena is meant to be an outsider to this system? She doesn't have social polish, but I wonder if this is more like a, more like she's a scholarship student or 
more she's rich but like the wizard boy from the problematic series she didn't have her parents to teach her about society um so that's the first question um and then two elements of Utsuna are clearly aesthetic references to the french revolution uh parenthetical the commercial break title card is written in french there's inspiration from the manga anime uh rose of versailles etc um what does it do to the series to take the trappings of revolution and transpose them into a world where an economic subaltern essentially does not exist who is working in the cafeteria here who are the janitors will not nanami be the first up to the guillotine in a true revolution thanks audrey okay i um, would spare nanami in the class war but <laughs> <laughs> yeah fully it's that meme of um in the me and the race war when i have to kill tony hawk but it's us <laughs> yeah. with nanami in the class, in the class war, war. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. Yes. yes. Let's tackle wow. um, the first question. I guess yes. just to reiterate what the first question is. Um, do you think? Do we think Utsuna is not supposed to be um, part of this like upper class sort of um, system that appears to be Otori Academy? Like, it, presumably, it's a private school. Like, uh, like we talked about, like the students live on campus. Um, everyone is dressed very well. Um, and like the question of like. Um, I don't know if like need or want is like never comes up ever like no one's ever in need of money that's never like a plot that happens in the show um and so what do you think do you think Utena is supposed to be literally a complete outsider to this um richness or do we think it's like uh, Audrey said a different sort of scenario where she is rich but she's like not acting like other people because she didn't have parents to do it I feel like I lean towards the more towards the she's a scholarship student situation. Um, I've seen people discuss this and like try to read into like Uchina's like clothes when we see her as a child, um, like in in the what, after her parents died and be like, oh, she's wearing kind of like normal, like like not like very like fancy clothes. Mm. And people have kind of I've seen maybe that was probably in like the empty movement Discord. People were talking about it, like you know, does this indicate like that she wasn't wealthy, didn't come from a wealthy family? Um, so that that was something I was thinking about. Um. I kind of lean more towards the she's a scholarship student situation that for whatever reason she's able to go to this school um, because the the anime doesn't really answer where she's been living since her parents died. Mm-hmm. People who have read the manga know she has an aunt um, <laughs> and she it's, it's we see how she gets to the school. Um, but if we should consider the manga and anime to be different texts. Um, uh, and so I, th- I, I, n- I never thought about it until Audrey sent in this question, but I think in subconsciously watching like Utsuna like move around this world, um, it feels like this is not her world. I agree. And I think Utsuna is not alone in that. I think Wakaba is maybe, I think, implied to be on a similar sort of like level as Utsuna, just because we always see her, she makes her own lunches. She brings her own stuff. Mm. Um, she's She and Utsuna are always like eating in the cafeteria. We never, I feel like we never really see um like any of the student council students especially like doing that like we can yeah. assume obviously like toga and nami are eating like in a fucking dining room in a mansion every day um i don't think we really see miki and jury like even like eating with them unless it's like a part of a social sort of like hangout thing mm-hmm. um and that's really just miki who does that um so i think honestly like you said um to me it feels like even if maybe 
they're there because they they can afford it in some way. I think there still are these like maybe they're like the lower upper class if we we're going to start talking about it that way. Um, like I don't know. I do think there is a disparity and like not just like socially but like economically to like to bring in socioeconomics. Yes, I think like you said, Utana feels like an outsider. Um, um yeah. not to make this about myself, but this did just realize make me realize like I I have experienced something kind of similar to that and when I was in high school, I went to an international school in Switzerland um mm-hmm. and I was like a scholarship student essentially, like my family like my fa- like I'm come from like a well-off family you know like we never you know upper middle class as everyone likes to say in the u.s you know like grew up you know fine but like um my family could have never afforded that school um but it was like i had to go to an international school because i didn't speak french um and i was like a poor kid at the school essentially Mm. because like the one of my classmates was the president of Cameron's daughter. Um, and like, oh. um, yeah, like, you know, the okay. children, yeah, yeah, the children of Russian <laughs> oligarchs. And I was like a poor kid, you know, like this, like, my, you know, my dad has a corporate job, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there is like a difference between like, like that kind of wealth and opulence is like such a world away. Even if like, mm-hmm. no, no, I don't think we need to necessarily think that like Utina is poor. <laughs> uh, sure. Or like, you know, because... Well, yeah, like it is like just a completely different like stratosphere of wealth. Like the the, the Nami and Toga are especially implied to like come from that like stratosphere of wealth. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, I just mm-hmm. and and Utina is not like she she's not on the student council. Like you know she's in like the way she falls into the dueling system feels like that too. Like she wasn't supposed to be in these duels. Mm-hmm. The only people who are in the duels are the student council, and they they are all implied to be wealthy to some extent. Uh, whereas, you know, and, and we see, like, how upset Jury is at, like, Utena, like, this interloper into the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think um, that just makes the most sense to me that, like you said, Utena is an outsider, and I don't think, she, like I said, I think there is just, like, uh, there are plenty of students here, like you said, that are maybe scholarship students, to use that phrase. Like, they, not everyone here is wealthy, but a lot of them are. Um, and as someone who went to public school, I think that those kind of systems will happen anywhere Mm -hmm. regardless of like what the upper ceiling is of wealth like there are still going to be even among like kids who are going to a public school there's still going to be the kids who have a lot more than have others like it's I think that's just going to happen anywhere um exactly so okay so I think we've covered uh the first question um the second question um is about uh the revolution about the the way the show uses the aesthetics of the French Revolution um and what does it mean that the show uh, uses these aesthetics, but without having that sort of like class disparity? Um, like, like Audrey uses the example of like we don't see like the people who work at the school. We don't really see like even if our some of our characters aren't well or off, we don't really see that. We don't see them having to like take jobs or like like we said, no one's ever struggling with money in the context of the show. Um, so. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you think it's irresponsible of the show to do that? Or do you care that it, the show does that? Does it, what is that? What are your thoughts? Um, it's hard for me to talk about the, the nature of revolution in this show and like mm-hmm. the use of that like word without talking about the, the way the, the, like, the end of the show. So mm-hmm. I'm like, how do I talk about this? Um, because it's like, that is, we, we don't really, we haven't really, we don't have the full picture of, of where we're at in the show of like how the show like is characterizing revolution 
um, in like a concrete sense. Um, it is interesting because I I never like again like thought about it more about beyond the base level of it's just the aesthetics. Um, but like you know, this is a show talking about revolution um, and. Yeah, you. I I had ignored. <laughs> like I was gonna say, you can't ignore, but I had ignored um, the you know that word, and then specifically pulling from these aesthetic influences is an interesting choice when we aren't really like revolution is not being defined in the show up until now, at least. Right, and um, it's, it doesn't seem to be about the idea of the, a, a lower class. No like taking down this system but i do think that it's there in a sense but it's not it's more um i don't know like mystified a little it's like the system in question here is not a socio-economic system it's this system of dueling of Mm -hmm. um there's these people who want this power um and then there's utsuna who's the outsider who comes in and gets the power and all that stuff um i agree i think it's hard and I don't think the show, I think the show, like like we said, it has stuff, I think, to say about capitalism and those kind of systems, but I don't think it addresses them in a way that, like, fully justifies the use of that, like, imagery. But I also do think part of it is, like, it's not really specifically about the French Revolution, it's more so that, like, Japanese people liked French culture and just, like, using that. I think a lot, that's also a big part of it, is just, like, I think they just like french and think it makes it sound fancier and more interesting um then the same way evangelion liked to use um christian imagery um literally because they just thought it looked cool (laughs) Um, (laughs) i think sometimes that is just what happens um but yeah i think we can maybe revisit that second question when we get a fuller picture of what revolution means in terms of and what the show is trying to say yeah but um yeah i will not if i'm Anywhere near the guillotine, uh, Nanami is safe. Um, <laughs> she can, yeah, she'll be fine. Toga, bye. Uh, Sanji, bye. Akio, bye. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, I Next. think, thank you, Audrey, yes, for that. Yes, Audrey, we love you. We'll have you back on very soon. Yes, um, Okay, next question is from Abby, she, her. Um, I love getting to hear y'all talk about Utna from the perspective of a new watcher. I've watched it three times now and always learned something new. Do you think you'll do this podcast again in the future from the view of someone who's watched the whole show before? I think that would be fun to listen to it from both sides. Thank you for this podcast. Could you imagine if we did this again? Well, this this came back to, I think we kind of mentioned why I I wanted, when we first started the podcast, like, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to do it with talking with, with like full spoilers? or not and for me the reason I was like we should because I wanted to get people I didn't I who hadn't seen the show to try it but also just on a practical level like god like our episodes are already There's... so long if we were a constantly like corkboard connecting everything I mean like um, I said about the shadow play sequence like we I feel like we could have had a very long discussion about the shadow play sequence from this episode with the full yeah. show and uh, to talk about but yes I yeah so like I feel like like I'm glad we're doing the way we're doing because it's like making it manageable. I would like love to be able to do like, okay, maybe like in a few years, Derek and I will be like, let's do it again. I mean, (laughs) I'm not opposed to that at all. Honestly, (laughs) like it could be like, I don't know, a year on to like, whatever. I think we've talked about already this idea of like how 
our interpretations can change over time with experience, all that. And I think this, yeah, Utena is a great sort of um, example of that. So who knows? Yeah. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be fun, but yeah, it would be a lot of talking and it would be very, a lot. I would just have so many thoughts. I wouldn't even know what to do myself. Um, but I'm glad you like us hearing us talk enough that you would be interested in that, um, yes. Abby. So Thorns of Death would have been like seven hours long. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, I'm pretty sure, I'm fairly certain that there are other podcasts that do approach it from a all bets are off yeah. sort of um, perspective. So um, I, maybe we could become one of those one day. But for now, um, go listen to as many Utena podcasts as you can, because they are all are amazing. <laughs> Um, um, okay. Um, yeah, so thank you, Abby. Yeah, thank you, Abby. Um, okay, next up is Inky, uses any pronouns. Um, hello, I hope this reaches the two of you well. I was thinking back to the Nanami's a cow episode, and was curious if either of you thought that the choice to have her be a cow instead of, well, any other animal held any additional si- significance, uh, considering they also made the decision to have Anthe be the race slash ethnicity she is. And assuming I'm understanding right, I'm assuming she's also being coded as being Hindu. Um, did that give the situation any added significance? Um, I keep coming back to that detail and I'm and never able to decide what I think they were trying to say or if this is just a the curtains were blue situation. Uh, so I would love to hear additional perspective if you have any. Um, first, well, I don't think the curtains are ever just blue in Usna. Um, no. But um, obviously I am a white man from the Midwest of the United States. I grew up in a um, Lutheran Christian household, um, so I can't really speak to like, uh, like as I can't speak from the perspective of someone who is Hindu or is um, Southeast Asian. Um, like, I uh, I so I don't know if like maybe the choice of the cow was like in reference to um, how cows are viewed in Hinduism. Um, I'm going to say probably not, but I don't know. Like, to me, we've talked about it before, how the cow just seems like a symbol of, like, slot, something being led to slaughter. It's like a livestock animal. Um, I, that's, like, my reading on it, and I think that's what the show is going for. But I don't know. What do you think, Christine? Do you think I, that I, there's more to it? I agree. I, I tend to lean towards it. It has more to do with the fact that it's, like, livestock being that, that is, like, mm-hmm. consumed um, and, like, yeah, led to slaughter that is, like, you know, Typically, you know, you know, a cow is like in certain contexts born to be slaughtered and right. to be eaten. Um, I think I would mention again, but like once we finish the show, we will link to some of the great writing that does exist on Auntie's um, appearance and her, you know, how you want to interpret her ethnicity and how that might factor into the narrative. We can't quite talk about that yet because it gets that stuff that we haven't talked about. But it's worth noting because it's worth bringing up because Absolutely, yeah. again, like Auntie is like Auntie's like ethnicity is kind of like the elephant in the room of the show it's just like no one ever addresses it in in the text um but we kind of have to mention it because it is a thing that you know it was a deliberate choice and we talked about you know it was definitely an aesthetic choice um mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we can't question you know does it also have this additional meaning but i lean towards the cow because it's specific it's yes like auntie was involved in that whole scheme but um it feels more about like what does the cow mean in relation to nanami um right so that's how yeah. I feel. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, okay, so do you want to take this next one, or I can take this next one, which is also from Inky? Um, yeah, if you want to do it, and maybe we can kind of paraphrase 
Um, this is another longer one, um, but I think okay. it's kind of like, I think these are maybe more comments. Um, so if you, you could also just read through. Okay, yeah, this is also yeah. uh, from Inky. Um, mm-hmm. Hello, gonna add some more comments. Um, and okay, so one of the things I wanted to comment on was about the Thorns of Death when Ikuhara, the creator, did uh, commentary. Um, he said, this love will crumble if we touch, but when people touch, the love eventually dies away, um, which along with the dueling song mentioning reflective surfaces, uh, I think kind of informs the scene with the sparrow. Um, I thought I'd throw in that uh, sparrows have been used with uh, symbolizing lust and vulgarity. Um, and so that's an interesting sort of take on the sparrow. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on was the milkshakes. Uh, I think they're used as a metaphor for Kozway, um, as like a sort of symbol of her comfort she needs from Miki. Um, I also think it was supposed to contrast another dessert-related scene from earlier on, um, with Auntie and the shaved ice. Okay. I thought it was about Auntie choosing to make a dish that didn't require much of herself mm. um, as much as a milkshake does. Milkshake takes a little more effort. Uh, I hope this all finds you well. I just want to say the two of you are doing a fantastic job. Um, thank you so much, Inky. Um, yeah. And okay, so basically the two other thoughts were the sparrow um, being something that symbolizes lust. Um, our thoughts on this. Uh, additional sort of interpretation of that scene um yeah I mean it's like lust and vulgarity because like um I mean we talk about how like Shiori and Juri um they have this connection but it is like so like based on these like false images of each other um like they I mean of course like I I my interpretation of the sparrow crashing the window is that like Jury is the tower and 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 Shiori is the sparrow and then I think Audrey was like no Jury's the sparrow and um you know and so again but like I think the idea of like the lust and vulgarity could be you know just the fact that this is like they are clearly obsessed with each other in a way that is like not based on anything like true or like good really because it's it's you know, based on these false false images of each other. That's my thought. Yeah. I think much like a horror movie, a die a bird running into a window is never a good omen. <laughs> I think that's that's uh, everyone's like I think consensus on that. Um, and then I, I I like this that other part about how odd these shaped ice requires mm-hmm. less um, input into it than um, a milkshake does. And also, you know, ice is. Um, I don't know, more transparent. There's less to it, whereas a milkshake is a lot hardier, uh, especially those goddamn my, my, McDonald's ones. Those ones are thick as hell. Um, maybe Mickey's <laughs> making those kind. Uh, so there's a lot of loaded, you know, symbolism with the milkshake. Um, I, I like that idea. What do you uh, thoughts on I thought that? that? I thought that was really interesting because I didn't think about, I, I didn't put, think about them in conjunction with each other, but they are both desserts, um, both made for another person. Um but uh in you know again like the one has like substance um and one doesn't really have substance um and i I had not thought about that until now so i appreciated that um that comment i don't have much more to say um, other than than, yeah thank you yeah inky thank you so much um thank you for the questions and also the cool new interpretations um okay i think that covers us for uh inky's submissions Yes. Um, so our next one is from our friend Ilani, uh, she, her, who guessed it on uh, 
qualifications of the duelists. Um, I don't know if this is something you have already discussed. Uh, what are your thoughts on Mitsuru being the only male Black Rose duelist, not including Mikaje, and his elevator monologue wanting, going to wanting violence? Sure, ultimately, all the duelists are brainwashed into wanting to kill Anthe, but I think given the show's themes of the restrictiveness of gender norms, masculinity, I think there's a larger implication to be had. Love the show, Shiori Rocks. So true, Bestie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, this this that episode is so... Ugh. The whole way that plays out is like very disturbing because of Swabiki's age and the way it is like framed with him like wanting to kiss Nanami and like the idea of like consent and the sword pulling and then then his like elevator sequence being so about like wanting to like destroy the world or whatever. Um, I think it is there is something to be said. Of course, like most of the Black Rose duelists are girls. Um and it could be said, you know, we talk about, like, I feel like Utsuna as a show does a really good job at showing how, like, gender is just as, like, like, the, like, gender norms are, like, just as, like, restrictive for, like, men um, and boys. But, like, the stakes are different and it, like, is on a different scale. You know, again, most of the duelists, the Black Rose duelists are girls. Uh, but Swabaki also does get roped into this system, and he he is just as restricted by the wanting to be an ideal man, wanting to and like looking at these images of masculinity, and of course for him that manifests in like really like outward like violence um, in his elevator sequence. So I really I've always really appreciated that he is included in this because again one of the things I think the show does really well is is showing that like this 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 hurts men and boys as well the the kind of like the the images of masculinity we talked about with Sionji as well and like living in Toga's shadow and what that does to him absolutely I agree and I think it's also worth noting like the um student council is um all men except for jury and like Nanami obviously comes in later um but it's really, it's almost like we have a majority male sort of like ruling class and then more women like get to put, like they get a taste of that power, but it's like very temporary and it's given to them by a man. Um, so it's also, I think, speaks to this idea of like how, you know, attaining that level of student council power um, is still out of their reach, even when they get to go into the dueling arena. It's only temporary and it's only under a special circumstance and they're not even supposed to be there. Um so yeah, I think that I think it is pretty significant. Uh, but I also think on a meta level, um, the fact that the whole Black Rose saga is about like side characters and the fact that like a lot of these side people who get pushed to the fringe or don't get a lot of attention are women. Um whereas men, I guess, hog the spotlight a lot more. Um, I think, yeah, there's a lot to be read into that. Um yeah, so I and I agree with everything you said. <laughs> yeah thanks um you want to get the next it's just a comment from lizzie <laughs> oh okay uh lizzie's comment um sigh jury is so gay and i'm gay for her man i just want to hold her hand also good luck christine that okay. was about my midterm <laughs> yes thank you lizzie for that thank you lizzie so true bestie <laughs> um. <laughs> okay um okay and so uh i'll take the next one then mm-hmm. uh, Okay, so uh, Hanny, uh, she, her, just wanted to comment on the Jewish Dona Dona song because I'm obsessed with it. If you did more research than you said on the show, then disregard this as I do not have an analysis on how it fits into the themes of the episode slash Utena, but here's some more info about it. There's a common belief it's about the Holocaust, but it was uh, composed prior to it. 
It is actually about the struggle between body and spirit. The cow is the body moving toward death and scared, sad to lose the joys of life. The farmer is God, chastising the weak-willed body. The sparrow is the spirit. The uh, half the summer's night line is very interesting to me. So here's a bit I found online about it. Uh, but why are the winds laughing the whole day and only the half of the summer's night? According to the Torah, the night is divided into two parts. Uh, the first part of the night, from sunset until midnight, is considered a time of din, uh, of strict judgment. This is not the time for laughter. Rather, it is a time of taking account of the day's actions and reflecting on them. Uh, the second part of night, from midnight until dawn, is a time of... Um, uh, I, I don't know what that word is supposed said, to be. Okay. I don't know. Uh, yeah, um, of kindness, and this kindness uh, continues throughout the day. Um, the summer's day is when the daylight is at its maximum, and the night is relatively short. Um, side note, the composer of The Nightmare Before Christmas is a Jewish, and it shows heavily in the music of the movie. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> you did. <it. laughs> so, yeah, that's an interesting sort of, um, I guess, more notes on the Dona Dona song. Um, I definitely, uh, I thought Christine was the the queen of researching songs, but uh, clearly... Christine has been dethroned. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, I thought that the, 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 the thing about the body and the spirit is interesting. Mm-hmm. The body moving towards death and, and um, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Especially um, when we think of, like we said, about the idea of the cow being sort of a, a livestock animal being led to slaughter. I, the, obviously, that song speaks a lot to it. It's not just like surface level also about cows. It's mm-hmm. uh, like also thematically relevant. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts? No, I just appreciated that that um, the more backstory on in terms of the the context of the Torah because that is not something I feel like I have an authority to comment on. Um, and like I'm you know familiar with a bit of it um, from like the research I did. But I really appreciated uh, getting this this comment and this more backstory. So thank you. And then we have a second question from Hanny. Um, Hi, would one or both of you guys ever consider doing another anime podcast like this? A lot of the fun in listening to you guys is how much you adore Utsuna, but if you have love for Naoki or Sawa's monster or any series that has a lot to digest, I would be thrilled to listen. Even if you went for something lighter, episodic commentaries are a delight to me. Obviously, you guys have lives, but I would love more if you wanted to give more. Um, I mean, I'm loving, th- I'm having so much fun doing this. I would definitely enjoy at some point. Um doing something else especially if it's something like I haven't seen before um I think it would be fun if it's like something one of us has seen and something one of us hasn't um I would definitely be down for it maybe like something shorter just because life is busy <laughs> um like it'd be fun yeah. like and like a, like maybe next after we finish this in the spring maybe we can do a shorter thing in the summer um when I'm like not in school <laughs> um but I'm I would I'm definitely enjoying doing this so if people want to send us suggestions for something and if we like have the time and space at some point to do it um it'd be fun but obviously no promises because yes we do unfortunately have lives yes um i do love the idea of naki urasawa's monster but um that would be the complete opposite of a short uh (laughs) um but i mean i don't know i've always talked about how much i would love to talk about evangelion at length at some point um oh my god (laughs) But I don't know. That might be a little too daunting for our very next uh, sort of thing. But who knows? Maybe one day. But yeah, um, I guess to reiterate what Christine said, I would be down. I guess we just got to find the perfect thing. I would love to have Adrian for if we did Evangelion. I know Adrian has a lot of complicated feelings. Yes, I know. I would be scared because I'm like a diehard, like Evangelion, (laughs) I think is my favorite thing ever. 
So I think things could get contentious between Audrey and I. I feel like if we did that, we we would need Audrey as a permanent third mic because that would be like too funny. Oh God! And then Christine just watching, <laughs> like us. mediating. Yes. No, um, I mean that would be so. I would love to talk to Audrey about. I mean, eh, anything obviously, but I think <laughs> Evangelion, Gundam, whatever. But like, I think just um to summarize, I think we would both be down to yes, Utena. Absolutely. Okay, so next here we've gone to raise many questions. <laughs> like, like, like a, they're more like comments and like thoughts. And so, um, I can read the first one because it's short, and then we can okay. maybe um, because it's just a, kind of an additional thing. Um, so this is from Ray. They them. First of all, I adore the podcast. I'm loving you to revisit Uchina for the first time in a decade in a much more big brain way. Um, so the first thing they sent was uh, the basic Japanese understander has logged on. Basically, structurally in Japanese, like you, comes before a younger boy, and they both modify the one they fell in love with, with a nice negative verb ending at the end. So in the original language, she being the secretary talking to Mikaje, uh, is pretty clearly saying that the person she fell in love with was not like Mikaje, who is younger than she is, as opposed to saying that, unlike Mikaje, she didn't fall in love with a boy younger than her. So Bray is basically saying, based on their understanding of Japanese because we were talking about like what exactly is the secretary saying she's more referring to the fact that like Mikaji has not aged right um, when she fell in love with him he was not um you know she has aged and he is not right okay that makes sense um so but yeah just like clarifying because we are dum-dums <laughs> yeah you know, in a lot of ways but also because we don't know japanese mm-hmm. um okay so ray's second question um Mikage insisting that he didn't manipulate anyone and that they rather came to him of their own free will because of what they wanted really ties into in with this arc's critiques of capitalist society. How much can anyone freely choose anything when they are backed into a corner with few options? A society that distributes power and resources unequally forces people to do things that they would not otherwise do in order to survive, let alone ascend. The vision Mikage paints for the Black Rose duelists is rosy seeming, but ultimately bleak. You can fight for yourself, but only by forcefully taking power from someone else. You can win, but do that. But to do that, you'll have to kill. You cannot work together with other people in the same or similar situations. You are duelists, not friends. Um, only one person is chosen enough to get the ultimate prize, a girl. So there is no being satisfied unless you are on top. Akio and Mikage both use the classic play of turning the less powerful against each other so that they can increase their own power and further their own goals without getting their own hands dirty. But Mikage, of course, gets his dirtier and dirtier because he himself is being manipulated. Mikage thinks um, in Mamiya he has something worthy of being the ultimate prize, but both he and the rest of the duelists are duped because it's Akio who actually has control of Anthi. Referencing a painting of a sex worker and a black woman in a service position is all the more interesting in this lens. How many sex workers, especially at that time, chose that work because it was their best or only option? How much could a black woman really choose her fate in a country where slavery has been abolished in less than 20 years earlier? Most of the original student council members are men, and in the first arc, they are presented as elite members of the school with access to knowledge and power that most students could not dream of. Uh, But in the Black Rose saga, the students' council dynamic is two-thirds women, and all but one of the Black Rose duelists are women, and suddenly we realize that duelists are not as powerful as they seem. Uh, They are edged into a corner and told that the path has been forged for them, and they are manipulated and used in a very physical way, emphasized by adding the violent sword pulling um, by seemingly possessed duelists to the already physical duels. Uh, Utena chastises Auntie. 
for letting the end of the world control her, but the Black Rose Saga asks, is she actually more free than Athi is? In the Olympia recreation is Mamiya Athia the Bride, who is taking control and looking at the viewer, as opposed to Nemuro Mikage the Duelist. Uh, Utina herself seems to realize this, waking up on the floor next to Athi, holding her hand, and realizing that Athi can't just be, just can't just quit being the Rose Bride. Um, and there's, there's two posters. Yes. <laughs> P.S. Don't we all wish we could just quit our jobs? And Miss Auntie is working three jobs in this art. Good Lord, she's tired. And P.P.S. Yes, there's an emphasis as women, as duelists and student council members in this arc, as we realize that duelists and student council members are not as powerful as they seem. But it should be noted that the gender dynamic switched because of the two boys simply could not hack it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I realized we said we'd paraphrase and then I just read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> like halfway through. But that's okay, because I thought it was all really interesting. It's all really, um, it's a really great comment. Um i don't have much more to add because this is this i do like i do think this show does say have a lot to say i don't think this is a show about capitalism but i think this is a show that does have a lot to say about capitalism as a as one of many systems um Mm -hmm. and yeah everything ray said spot on um in terms of like the way this art kind of shows us where these kind of takes this position of power duelist we think that that's kind of like the top of the food chain but then we really see uh this like dark side of it and like that there really is little agency in in power in being a duelist in itself especially with these black rose duelists and everything with makaje mm-hmm. um and i love yeah. the reference to the olympia painting yeah just great great comment agreed yeah especially when we think about how like the end of the first arc kind of um shows us that there's at least Two men who are above everything else, like Akio and the Prince, are like even above beyond the student council. And it's not a coincidence that then the student council starts losing their music, their like, um, I don't know, everything that makes them seem so much higher and mightier than they actually are. Um, mm-hmm. So it makes sense also that like Ray was talking about how it's suddenly that becomes more stark when it's um, there are more women than men. Suddenly it's more apparent, I guess, to us that. Um, they're being manipulated uh, when we used to think that they were, like you said, the top of the food chain. Yeah, all great stuff. Yeah, and then the second question, I think let's like, uh, the or the third thing, let's post a screenshot of this because like we're, we still have a few questions to get to and this is already really long. Um, but it's, I really like this this next one from Ray. We'll post a screenshot of it. It's about like uh, Makaje and Mamiya and Anthi and mediums and cold readings. Um, I thought this is really interesting, um, but we will, yeah, post that because... It's great, and we want to show it to y'all, but we do have a few more questions to get to, and it's long. But thank you, right? These are both very insightful, and we will post that underneath the tweet for this episode. Um, Okay, Um, so I'll read the next one from Cloud. Uh, They, them, or Fay Fair. Um, Good job of this arc. On my rewatch, I noticed that Utina's dueling uniform is far more similar to the dark-colored jackets run by the Black Rose Duelists um, than the white jackets run by Student Council. Um, so the Black Rose Duos being those chosen by Makaji and Mami and Anthi, and Student Council, those directly being chosen by End of the World. I was unsure of what to make of it. Do you have any thoughts of that and what it might mean? Um, and thank you for your analysis of episode 21, which is Vermin, Troublesome Insects. Um, they really opened my eyes to a death of an episode I previously overlooked. Thank you, Cloud. Um, do you have any thoughts on the color of Utina's um, uh, jacket? I think maybe, um, other than it looks really cool, uh, <laughs> I think that it does once again sort of provide a stark contrast between her and the rest of the student council. Um, like we said, they are all big and like pristine white 
um, with like their, their pretty like little accessories. Um, and she gets those accessories too when she's dueling, but the, her the base uniform still basically stays the same, which is black. after Anthe yassifies her. <laughs> yes, she the yassification of Utsna. Um, but I do think it also I don't know we talked about death kind of at the top of this. It also is kind of you know maybe she's in mourning. That's another way to read into that there. Um, there's a lot of death with the Black Rose duelists. Like, literally, their powers come from burning up um, a coffin. Uh, so, I don't know. I don't know if that was the intent when making Utena's outfit, but, I mean, it's certainly something I'm willing to look into. <laughs> like, I'm willing to read into more. Um, I think, you know, though, ultimately, to me, it is more about just, like, contrasting her visually with the student council members as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I would agree. And I think there's something you could be said about, like, you know, like, the student council very much at the start views, like, well, jury in particular views, like, Utena is, like, an illegitimate duelist. And we can see Black Rose duelists as illegitimate duelists mm-hmm. in that um, they were not really chosen, um, like, in the way that Utena, you know, she has the ring, but she kind of fell into it, and they don't know why she has it. So that could be there, too, that they they are, both the Black Rose duelists and Utena are seen as, like, illegitimate in some way to varying degrees. I agree. Um, um, yeah, okay. thank you, Cloud. We got two more. Yeah, thank you, Cloud. Um, this next one's from Ree, she, her. Hello, Shadowplay Gaze. My question is, uh, if it was either of you, or no, is if either of you read the experiment science the Hall boys were doing? Oh, okay, I see now. <laughs> okay, so they're asking, or she's asking, um, if either of us saw the experiment that the um, Nemero Memorial Hall boys were doing um, as them creating eternity but also the development or creation of the dueling arena the reference to the path to the dueling arena has opened and professor nemero's work is finished in the banquet scene assuming some version of that scene actually happened at all always led me to believe that akio's really recruited mikage to create um the dueling arena for the next stage of the long game he's playing love the podcast and thanks for all both you both do thank you Ree. sorry i butchered the hell out of your question <laughs> <laughs> what I think um, yeah, um, I definitely think um, the so is the like yeah like in terms of like they were not so, just like creating yeah. eternity but like the work they were doing was to create the dueling arena to physically create it. I yeah. think is what she's asking. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I see them as the boys are the sacrifice that are necessary to create. So it's like you wonder like because it's like ultimately it is them burning in the building that allows the dueling arena to open and so i think they are not it's like not necessarily the work they're doing is going to create eternity it is they are just the pawns they're just the pieces on the chessboard for like akio to then maneuver makaje into sacrificing to like in his like weird this weird chess game to get the dueling arena to open so in a way, yes, but like it's not so much like the re- I think like the research and the experiment isn't necessarily like the what's relevant. It's just yeah, the, the, they are just like fodder. They are livestock. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think they're like physically building the arena, which I think is what Re is getting at. I think maybe like uh, whether the dueling arena was always always physically there or not i think they like the goal of this group was not or was to like i guess get access to the dueling arena or they knew there was like eternity was somewhere up there i guess um i don't know i don't think they were 
I, like the physical reality of the dueling arena is something really interesting to me. Um, and the fact that like multiple characters talk about it, um, but only characters who like are important. Like we never hear like Wakaba reference the dueling arena or other like students talk about the, du- they talk about the forest, but they don't mm-hmm. talk about like the arena. Um, so I don't know. I think that's another sort of big question to ask is like, what is the like physical reality of the dueling arena at all? Like, is it a physical actual place or is it something like another plane of existence? I don't, I really don't know. Uh, but I think that's maybe, um, I don't know. Like the charm of the show to me is like, I don't think that's clear and I don't think it needs to be clear. Like whether physically it's actually like happening or not. Um, But regardless, like you said, it's more so about how those boys were being used by Akio to some end other than actually attaining eternity. I think that was more of a a pretense for him to use them at all. Yeah, the boys think they're chasing eternity, but they're really just fodder for this other thing. Yes. Thank you, Ree. Yes, um, thank you. And our, our last one is a fun one, and it'll be a quick one. Uh, this is from Ilani. Again, um, what is your Kaustian Dior accessory of choice when trying to show off at a children's party? Mm. I would have a Ch- Kaustian Dior carabiner. Oh, I love that. I think mm. I my look is pretty um, like baseball cap-centric, so I think it would have mm. to be a Kaustian Dior baseball cap. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I, thank you, Ilani, so much for that. Yes. Um, um, and thank you all so much for uh, sending in these questions and comments. Um, these are so fun. I love these episodes. Um, and I'm sad that we presumably only have like one more of these, two more, I guess. I think, yeah, we'll do one more at the end of the third arc and then one more to wrap up the last arc, even okay. though there's no, there won't be a clue. Spoiler alert, the show doesn't end with the clip show, <laughs> um, but no. we will, we will do our own. Um, uh, so yeah, we will have two more. Uh but they are very fun. And again, we will get to the ones we did not include this time and keep sending us questions at any time. Um, And we will be glad to answer. So next week, we are jumping into the third arc, which is usually referred to as the Akio Otori saga. Um, Yes, unfortunately, we're going to be seeing a lot more of Akio of that uh, you haven't gleaned. Um, And next week, we'll be talking about episode 25, um, Their Eternal Apocalypse, which is, I really, really love this episode, and I'm so excited to talk about it. Very good. Up there is one of my favorites. Um, uh, So yes, we'll be back next week talking about Their Eternal Apocalypse, episode 25, the first episode of the third arc of the show. We're really flying through it. Um, Derek, where can people find you? Um, they can find me at Rain Dierks on Twitter. You can also listen to me talk to our friend Sam Stanish about Survivor at Bridgers Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and yeah, what about you, Christine? Where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at xdean underscore files. And if you want more Survivor, I write about it on Inside Survivor uh, every uh, Tuesday. Me and my friend Gia post a little article kind of wrapping up the previous week. Um, so yeah, you can read that on Inside Survivor. And that's it. Um, so so yeah, Derek, we got through it. This is this is being longer than I think we both planned, but yeah. Um, both... But I still had so much fun. Like I said, love getting questions, and you know, all I can say for next arc is um, vroom vroom. Here we vroom, go. Vroom vroom. <laughs> all right, bye. See you soon. Bye.